Good morning. On the day in October 1933, John and Betty Stams were married. Eleven months later, Betty gave birth to their baby girl, Helen. And two months after giving birth to her daughter, Betty and her husband, John, arrived in a little town in China, a remote town ready to serve and share the gospel with the people who had only a very small influence of the gospel in that town. They wanted to share Christ with these people to help them know eternal life in Jesus. Two weeks later, the communist soldiers came to their door and arrested them, dragging them off to a local jail. The soldiers also looted everything they owned and then released them. But then on December 8th, less than a month after they arrived in 1934, John and Betty Stams were arrested again and were beheaded. John was beheaded first as his wife looked on. After John had died, Betty was then beheaded right by her husband. They were forced to leave their little girl, Helen, on the bed in their home as they were violently taken from their home. Betty had sewn two $5 bills inside of her daughter's blanket with hope that someone would take care of her. The baby was rescued two days later by a Chinese national evangelist and taken a hundred miles to her grandparents. In terms of our culture, when you hear a story like that of missionaries dying after only a month of service, was their life a waste? They were only married 14 months. They only got to enjoy their daughter for three months. They were only able to share the gospel for one month before sealing their message with their blood. Many would say, what a waste. But this could not be further from the truth. Their testimony and God's testimony of rescuing that little baby, girl, has gone out into the world and impacted arguably thousands more than if they would have stayed there and served for years in that little town. Their testimony has been a driving motivation for thousands of missionaries, and their story has been retold over and over. You can look it up on the, on the web. It's amazing. It's in uh, John Piper's One Momentary Marriage. Did I say it right? This momentary marriage, sorry. Um, it's at the very beginning. In fact, many of you ladies know Elizabeth Elliot. She had the privilege of meeting Betty Stams before she went to the field and obviously traced Betty's life and then turns around. Y'all all know Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband was martyred on the field. All of this worked together in an amazing way to help everybody bring glory to God and trust Him more. 
Was it a waste? No way, folks. Laying down your life for Christ is one of the greatest honors that anyone could do. Church family, this is the reality of walking with God. Serving Christ can be very costly. How do we do this? How can we be this committed? The answer is very clear. Our focus must be on the all-valuable king who we serve. He must be all-satisfying to us. He's the one that makes us stand firm in the midst of difficult circumstances. As we read Stephen's life in Acts chapter 7 last week and the week before, and we saw him lay his life down for Christ, I don't know about you, but I know who he knew. (laughs) He knew Christ. And his understanding of Christ caused him to do things that most of us would cower at. But God was working in him. This is why John and Betty Stamps counted it a privilege to lay down their lives for Christ. And this is why Stephen considered it a privilege to suffer for Christ's sake. And this is the sacrificial commitment, this kind of sacrificial commitment has always had a profound effect on the church from early on, hasn't it? Beloved, listen. Persecution and martyrdom is like pouring gasoline on the flames of the gospel. When people die for Christ, they say, you really believe what you preach. And we're not talking about the Muslims that run run planes into buildings to kill innocent people. These are people that lay down their lives for others. A dramatic difference, isn't it? It's the difference of the gospel, isn't it? And yet we find ourselves, I don't know about you guys, we find ourselves complaining about the smallest little things in our life. Oh, God, have mercy on us, right? Help us to find our focus and attention on Jesus Christ. Today we're going to examine the pain and joy of ministry that John and Betty Stams knew. And there's her little daughter. You know, imagine, this is, the little, this is what she looked like when she was put in a little basket and hauled over 100 miles by that evangelist in China. Today we're going to examine the pain and joy associated with the spread of the gospel so that we will know what we should value most as we follow Christ. Notice in your passage first, we're going to look at the pain associated with the spread of the gospel. That's found in verses 1 through 3. Notice, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, that is Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. What we see here is that there are numerous challenges to the early church. There are numerous challenges to the spread of the gospel. And as we walk with Christ, we see, and as we see these guys walking with Christ and the early church walking with Him, we see 
there are many challenges. Let's look at three challenges to the spread of the gospel that are, are very painful as revealed in this passage. First, there's wicked opposition. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And in verse 3 it says, But Saul began ravaging the church. The opposition wants to silence us at any way he can. It started that way with the church also. Tempting us, slandering us, defrauding the church, shaming the church, and even having members of the church killed if possible. And that's exactly what Saul was all about. But all of it, ladies and gentlemen, is worth it because we know Jesus and enjoy Him. Our reputation, our finances, our families, even our own lives are not as valuable as knowing and enjoying Jesus. And so even though Saul was wicked in his opposition and he pursued Stephen and was part of pursuing other members of the church to kill them and have them arrested, it was all part of God's plan, His glorious plan. I look at this and I, I marvel at who this is. Again, you got to remember who wrote the book. Luke wrote the book, right? And you know Paul is included in the book. And Paul helps Luke write the book. Do you understand that? And so you got to understand that as, Paul's, or as Luke is writing down Acts chapter 8 verse 1, Paul is giving him an account of what happened. I was there. And he names himself Saul. What we see here is, is that God uses all different types of people in his plan. And yet at the same time, what's, what's staggering about this whole thing is, is just how wicked he was. And who God chose to be one of his own apostles. Look how wicked he is. It literally says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That means he was all in it. He was all about killing him. He wanted him dead. This was a murderer. Again, if you were picking your top people to lead your church, how many of you would look out and say, okay, yeah, that one right over there, that murderer, the one that hates the church. That's how God picked. And it says, but Saul began ravaging the church. Beloved, despite how bad this is, God still was at work. And his people were fixed on him. As Jim Elliot, a martyr of Christ, said before his own death at the hands of the Aka Indians, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The reality is, is that the early church said, hey, you take my life, I get Christ. And that's okay. So are we going to face wicked opposition? Yes. Are we going to face it regularly? Yes. The enemy has not changed. His devices are the same. The early church was now in the cross eyes of the Jewish establishment led by Satan. Specifically, I believe Luke is probably referring primarily to the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews who had embraced Christ as their Messiah. We saw this back in chapter 6 when they picked this, the, the, the first quote-unquote deacons, the first servants, and they were from the Hellenistic Jews. 
What makes these events so amazing is one of the chief opponents of the Christians would be the one of the, their greatest leaders in just a few months or a year. It's shocking, isn't it? But this is how God does things. He turns his enemies into his heralds. You know how I know this is a fact? Because I'm one of them. He turned his enemy into a herald. I remember people trying to share the gospel to me when, right before I went off to the University of Florida. They were some uh, students from Southeastern over in Lakeland at the time. I was working at a post office. I'll never forget them telling me, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And I, I said to them, y'all are crazy. You are weird people. I used to mock them. I thought they were nuts. And now I'm up here saying, you need Jesus. <laughs> He's your only hope. That's God, isn't he? He takes wicked sinners like us, the opposition, and turns us in to be his heralds. Praise the Lamb, right? Notice the pain, though, of the gospel spreads to, is further revealed in the great persecution. The great persecution is found in the second half of one, and then three it says, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Paul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. There's a sense where... Fear is often at the door of our hearts if we're true believers. There is, it is a fact. And I, I want to get a, a point across to you that this is what we should expect. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a reality. Now, let me ask you a question. As I was thinking on this, should, should we fear... The answer is we shouldn't, should we? We should trust and be strong and courageous. However, is fear a reality for us? And does it come in our hearts? Absolutely. Do you think that these people did not fear? What was it that drove them to a degree? What motivation here did they have? It says, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Why, did, why were they scattered? Because... I'm going to die. Do you understand? So fear is real. You have it. And sometimes a lot of us will be over spiritual when somebody comes up to you and says something like this. You know, I'm really afraid that a spouse is not going to make it. Or I'm afraid of this. What we do is we say, oh, you, you can't be afraid. Just trust the Lord. I think sometimes we can be overly uh, religious in our own eyes, forgetting that, you know, fear is a reality for what we live in. Anybody been afraid in the last couple months? Yes? It's okay. Yeah, fear is a reality for us. But God even works within our own fears to accomplish His great will. Isn't that glorious? Look what He did. You know, He said, you're going to be my witnesses throughout Judea and Samaria. They were in Jerusalem. They were staying in Jerusalem. Fear actually was the motivation to push them out to the areas he wanted the gospel spread to. 
Wait, Mike, you're telling me he, God used fear to move his word out? Yeah, and that's okay. God can do what he wants to do, right? Did they learn to trust him more as they embraced this? Yes. How many of you are constantly being taught by the Lord through your mistakes and sins? Right? That's what God's doing. Don't be super spiritual and think that you stop fearing. You stop all pride in your life. That's garbage. That's perfectionism. We all have to run to Christ regularly, don't we? We need him. This is the life of a believer and a minister of the gospel. There's an awareness that persecution can come at any moment. Notice even the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, was not completely invincible to fears. Look over at Acts 18, 8. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they had heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. What's that imply? He had fear. He was in that city going, wait a second, I'm about to die. I could die at any moment. Somebody's going to get me. These people in Corinth hate me. God encourages him. That's why I think in 1 Corinthians 2, look what it says. This is neat stuff. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.1. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in, de- in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Okay, let's, let's get real here. Let's be honest. Do you have fear in your heart? Do you have fear in your heart? Let's be real. This is who we are. We're vulnerable people, aren't we? I think this is what we need. I think we need to start here. We need to start at being real people, being honest. They ran for fear. Why? Because they're afraid of dying. Do you think Betty Stams and John Stams didn't have some fear going on? Absolutely they had some fear. Do you think that they cried? Absolutely they cried. Do you think it was easy to leave the baby on the bed? No, it was not. Beloved, let's be real. For when we're really real, we're going to end up someplace. Where's that? On our knees before our Savior, saying, God, I need you. I need him. How about you guys? Do you understand that even when I walk up here sometimes, there's fear just, oh, crouching at my door before I come up here to talk to you? Like, Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I need you, God. Now, please help me. I'm afraid. I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to dishonor him. 
need him. Fear comes, but Christ is reigning, so he's our answer. Trials come, they spring up, but the Father conquers through us. Praise him. By the way, he is the forgotten father, isn't he? That's who we need to go to. We need to go to our father. He's the one that helps us. He's the one we curl up in his lap when we're struggling. And he's the one that the early church went to. Persecution arises, but the spirit empowers. Notice also there's intense lamentation. See this in verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. This word devout, probably God-fearing, that has the idea of God-fearing. This is very interesting because the Jewish law additions, that is, they, they had additions to the law that they had given in the, what's called the Mishnah, said that no mourning should take place for anyone that was stoned to death. So what do we have here? We have some men that apparently were influenced by Stephen's stoning, that were influenced by his message. It's not even really clear whether these were men of the church or whether they were men of the area, Jewish men that said, look, we fear God, we know God, and that guy was telling the truth. And y'all killed him. And you stoned him. Now what the Mishnah said, hey, ignore it. He, you should just dust off your feet, in a sense. Run away. But instead, what do they do? They mourn for Stephen. It says something. I believe it's pointing to the reality that some people were saved through watching the testimony of Stephen. I think that's what it's pointing to here. And they made loud lamentation over him. But also, it, either way, it, it points to what? It points to those that want to honor God. There's pain and there's sorrow. Again, what do we see? Not only is there persecution, not only is there opposition, but there is also sorrow. It's there. It is a part of our lives. I, I know some of you, I'm talking directly to you. I, I, I see your faces. You've called me. You've said, I'm hurting. I'm struggling. I'm crying. I'm hurting. And I can hear your tears. I get it. I understand. That's what walking with Christ is. As long as we stay on this planet, what? There's pain, isn't there? Listen, I, I don't want to be a fake church. And don't make fake Christians in here. If somebody comes up to you crying, don't say, it'll be all right. It'll get better and move on with platitudes. Please don't. The reality is, is the early church cried. They lamented loudly. Why? Because it's a painful world to live in. This is the truth, isn't it? I think often we think, oh, well, we're the really spiritual sovereignty of God people here, so we can't cry. No, folks. It's still painful to live here. I wept bitterly when Luke was going through what he went through. For hours, tears streaming down my face. 
We need to quit not acting. Let's be real. There's some hurting people in this congregation. I see it in y'all's, some of your Facebook posts where parents have died. And they're hurting. I'm sorry. It's not easy. Walking on this planet's hard, isn't it? That's why you have verses like this by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. Look at this. This is just... 2 Corinthians 6, 4, it says, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Boy, this doesn't go over very well with the name it and claim it word of faith preachers, does it? In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. And you think, well, that's good. Let's leave it there. By glory and dishonor. By evil report and good report. Regarded as deceivers. We're called deceivers. And yet true. As unknown. We're just anonymous nobodies out here. Yet well known. As dying, yet behold, we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Boy, that is the opposite of the seeker-sensitive message. That is the direct opposite. It's not about the pastor getting rich. It's about us becoming poor. And making you rich. And it's not about, by the way, that's not talking about riches here either. I believe he's talking about riches in heaven. As we see in this passage, the life of the believer includes pain, sorrow. It's there, isn't it? Yet at the same time, time paradoxically, the believer experiences many joys... Look at, the, look at the pains, afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, dishonor, evil report, being called or regarded as deceivers, as unknown, dying, as sorrowful. Would you, let me ask you a question. Can you imagine if somebody was a very sorrowful person? and they were in our church, what would we probably tell them? Come on, you need to get over this. Get past it. You need to move on. Are you trusting in the sovereignty of God? That's what we'd say. What's this sorrowful? There's brokenness. I think your reason why we often want people to move on from these things. I, I struggle with this too. My, my little girl has got a lot of good emotions, beautiful emotions. I just want her to stop with the emotions. I can't do that. I need to be careful. I need to be a good daddy. I need to be a loving daddy that's kind and compassionate to her. 
even when she wants to cry a little bit. It's okay. I understand. We need to be able to show compassion. Because the reality is, is walking with Jesus is what? Painful. Yet at the same time, we see in the same passage, what? There's also purity and knowledge and patience and kindness. And the power of God, right? At the same time, paradoxically, we're always rejoicing, even though we're sorrowful. Why are we rejoicing? We're rejoicing because we know the glory of Christ. We know how good He is. He's all satisfying. And so no matter what happens to us, we're satisfied with Him, even if persecution happens. I think we overreact. We either go one way or the other. I think we need to sit in the paradox more. All too often, I think, I'm way too quick to go over. Hey, remember the power of God. Remember the sovereignty of God. I'm so objective sometimes. Objective to a fault at times. I need to sit there and hurt a little bit. Boy, that doesn't sound good. All y'all objective men out there, what are you talking about? This doesn't sound good. Well, don't just brush it away. Because it is the reality of where we live. Don't be fake. It's a painful life we live, isn't it? How many of you are sick and tired of sin? I'm ready for it to die, aren't you? I was reminded of this even yesterday as I kicked the sofa trying to stop the dog from getting in trouble. The Lord taught me a great lesson. The point is, Mike, you need me. As I was rolling around on the bed with my toe throbbing, I began to laugh out loud while crying at the same time. (laughs) Thinking, God, you're so good. You're so good. You love me. This wicked, wretched sinner. I need you. There's pain, isn't there? And yet there's also joy. Notice the joy associated with the spread of the gospel. We found it. find it in verses 4 to 8 and then 9 to 13. We'll focus on 4 to 8. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said to, by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had un, had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Oh, beloved, isn't this a beautiful picture? Pain and joy. <laughs> the pain of ministry? Run! The joy of ministry. The joy of walking with God. What is the joy? Ha, here's the joy. Seeing your faces enjoy Christ. 
seeing you delight in Him. Oh, there's joy there. It's the joy of conversion. It's the joy of deliverance, isn't it? It's the joy of getting to preach Christ. (laughs) That's what we have here. Notice the three blessings associated with the spread of the gospel here that produce great joy. First, the privilege of evangelism. Oh, beloved, I hope you get this. Therefore, therefore what? Since they were scattered, since they ran for their life, since they were afraid. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Despite the trials, there is a joy that goes with us always wherever we go. There is a joy that is constantly with us. Here's the joy. We get to share Christ with people. That's a good thing. Also, often, I hear people saying, I'm afraid to share the gospel with people. Oh, no, 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 no. You can be afraid of people so you can run to Christ, but the reality is this. Being afraid to share the gospel, no, no, no. That's a joy. (laughs) That's a privilege. That's fun. Sharing Jesus with people that are lost and going to hell, guess what? That's one of the greatest things you can do. That's fun. Have y'all ever, y'all all know what I'm talking about. You ever been sharing the gospel with somebody and you're just like, wow, this is great. You think in your mind as you're talking to them, man, Jesus, you really are really good. Before you know it, you're like, man, and he's like this and he did this. And wow, God, he, he's so good to us. He loves us. He sent his son for us. Literally, it says here, those who had been scattered went about preaching. This is where we get our word for evangelizing. Literally, you could translate this. You could translate it, proclaiming the good news, the word. It is where we get the idea of evangelizing. And this is our privilege, isn't it? And he began to proclaim Christ to them. This is the substance of our message. Oh, and I can't encourage you enough. Listen, listen, listen closely. When you're in pain, talk about Jesus. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but that is what it's about. When there's sorrow, when there's fear, when there's difficulties, when there's opposition, talk about him because why? He's why you live. You're affirming what you're trusting in when you share him. And there's joy there, isn't there? So the pain, the sorrow, the terror of being persecuted, being hauled off from your own home, men and women, led to what? Sharing the glory of Christ, sharing the gospel. And that's where our joy is found. This is very interesting. Who brings this message and who he takes it to? Philip here? Philip was most likely one of those less respected Greek-speaking Jews who were the main focus of the persecution. When it says that persecution broke out, except the apostles stayed, it appears that he's speaking a little bit hyperbole there because the church in Jerusalem does grow. But the idea is is that those that were probably the Hellenistic Jews that had become Jesus followers, those um, uh, servants that had been appointed and those that they were leading, that was the main focus of the attack. And those were, and Philip was, one of those 
that was being persecuted by the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem. He was, in a, in a sense, he was an outcast among his own people. When he embraced Christ, everybody in Jerusalem said, we hate those people now. It's because you embraced too much. You were letting the culture get into your, uh, your theology, and that's why you embraced Jesus or something to that effect. So they were outcast by their own people. But this is perfect, because guess who they go to? They go to the outcast. <laughs> Philip goes to Samaria. What's in Samaria? The Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? Those were the half-breeds. At the end of the reign of Solomon, y'all understand this, that there was a civil war between the north and the south, right? In, in Israel. The northern tribes of Israel separated from the two godly southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But when this happened, the nation had been divided and nothing could bring them back together. Oh, Now listen, focus in on this. In fact, the northern tribes were taken captivity by Assyria, right? Y'all know your Bible, right? And as some of the people trickled back into the land, what did they do? Instead of staying faithful to their own tribes, they intermarried. They intermarried with the people around there. And they became the Samaritans. And so, what did the Jews of Judah think of them when they came back from Babylon and they interacted with these people? What did they think of them? These are outcasts. They would make special arrangements to walk around the air area so they didn't have to walk through it. And so, this is beautiful. What happens? These people need the gospel too, don't they? Fear comes, and where does Philip go? To the place of the outcasts. And he proclaims the gospel to the outcasts. And what happens? The outcasts are united again. What could not happen, beloved, listen. What could not happen for a thousand years, north and south, Israel and Judah were not coming back together. No matter what happened, they did not like each other. When the gospel happens, what happens? You have Jews from Jerusalem go over to Samaria and they become followers of the same Christ. Unity. This is how God works. All through the proclamation of the gospel. I see it in our church, don't you? I see how, look, there's one people in Christ, right? And we're all that way. Why? Because of the unity of the gospel. Because Christ died for all of us, right? That trust in him. These mixed breeds became known as the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are coming to know Christ who Philip went to. You understand fully what a privilege it is to be an ambassador for Christ, beloved. This is where your joy is found when you share Christ. And again, I don't need to do a message on five reasons why you should be an evangelist. Or five reasons why you need to share your faith. I'm just going to give you one. Because the gospel. Because you know who Jesus is. If you know who he is, what should you do? Share him. He saves people. Second, notice the hope of deliverance. We see this in 6 to 8. The crowds with one accord were given attention to what was said by Philip. As they heard and saw the signs which he was performing... For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. 
And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. We see here Philip's arrival brings unity (laughs) again. There was unity against Stephen. Now there's unity to hear Philip. And again, what the gospel does is it unifies people. (laughs) It does. As Christ is proclaimed, people that are enemies come together, either for him or against him. (laughs) And that's what happens here. Either people unify and say, I hate Christ, which is what happened to Stephen, right? And he was stoned. Or they unify and say, I love Christ. Give me more. And that's exactly what we see here. Again, beloved, this is shocking. For over a thousand years, these two groups of people hated each other and were, did not like talking to each other. For Philip to walk into this city and proclaim something about the Christ, for them to all with one accord listen to him, screams something miraculous is happening. <laughs> something big's happening. Because the Samaritans did not even associate with the Jews. And the Jews didn't associate with the Samaritans. But yet they're all listening to one another. What we see here is the deliverance, the hope of deliverance that's promised in the gospel. And this is where our joy is found. Also, there was deliverance from demonic influences, it says, for the miracle, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Now this again points to a supernatural authority and power that Philip had been given from God as authorized by the apostles. Philip was helping to deliver people from demonic possession. The power of Christ's reigning authority was obvious and it was being demonstrated through Philip. It's confirmed and it confirmed the glory and authority of Jesus Christ. It confirmed the message. This is the hope of the gospel today, right? And listen to me. Um, so if you see somebody, and I want to see, see if this applies, and, and I want to give you a little bit of application. Some people have said, well, should we cast out demons in people like Philip here? If you see somebody that you think is possessed by a demon, should you cast out demons? Well, first of all, it doesn't say anything about him casting out the demons. It says they were coming out of them. Okay? It doesn't say how he got them out of them here. Do you understand? It doesn't describe it the same way Jesus did. But I would argue that the main point is what he was preaching. Listen to me closely. If you get somebody that is all evil or completely enraged and controlled by evil, what should you do? The same thing Philip did. Preach the gospel to them. That's the reality. When we proclaim the gospel... The gospel is delivering. If somebody turns from their sin, guess what? The demon's going away. If God begins to work in their heart and they embrace the gospel, guess what? They're delivered. It's not my authority or my power that I say, get out of that person. I cast you out in the name of Jesus. That's not what it's about. It's about proclaiming the gospel. The deliverer, proclaiming Christ is what delivers people. And I think that's no different for us. I think if we proclaim the gospel to people that are in bondage to sin, guess what? There's deliverance. It's the same message. So in application, what do we do if it appears that somebody has a demon? What should we do? Proclaim the gospel. Share the gospel with them. 
talking about their hope in Christ. And last we see another deliverance that came. The deliverance of physical healing. Physical pain like being paralyzed or lame. These people were being healed. And I, I just I, I can't wait until next week because next week you're going to see uh, the Word of Faith movement representative in, in, Simeon, in Simon. You're going to see him. That's who he is. Beloved, when you look at this, what you see is, is that God does deliver. This is a special time God has established to authenticate the glory of the gospel. Now, it's very important for us to think on here. They were all temporary healings, weren't they? All these people that were healed? Let me ask you a question. Did they die? Yes, they all died. Those were temporary healings. But what did it point to? It pointed to a greater healing. And by the way, there is a greater healing coming for all of us. And what is that? Heaven. Why? Because of the gospel. That's one for us, isn't it? Do I have a hope of being delivered from physical pain? Yes. Where is it? Heaven. Why? Because of Jesus. Oh, so we're going to preach healing here. Yes, in heaven we're going to be healed. After all, isn't that what Peter says? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me ask you a question. When, Paul, when Peter said this, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, who was he talking to? Persecuted Christians. In fact, he was talking to people that were going to, a lot of them, were going to die at the hands of Nero. What does protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to reveal mean? Does it mean physically protected? I don't think so, beloved. Not here on this earth. I think it means protected in your salvation. That you will be delivered and glorification is a promise. And you will have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Friends, do we have, do we believe in healings? Absolutely I do. The eternal ones. I believe we're going to be healed one day in heaven. I'm thankful that these bodies of death are going to be gone. How about you guys? This is the hope of the gospel. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, as known, yet well known, dying, yet behold, we live. Notice this hope of deliverance and the message of the gospel produces great joy. In verse 8 it says, So there was much rejoicing in that city. This is the joy of being part of the gospel ministry. No, we don't always see physical healing now, but we will. We get to see people controlled who were controlled by Satan come to Christ and be delivered. We get to be used by God to proclaim His Son. These are the true joys. 
seeing people come to Christ, grow in Christ, know Christ, and go to glory in Christ. So what's the answer for us when we face these pains, these difficulties, these trials? Well, the answer is we proclaim Jesus. (laughs) We share him with others. We long to see others come to him. If our joy is only in these things of this world, then the pain will be magnified by a million times. But if our joy is found in Christ alone, no matter what happens to us on this earth, though it may be sorrowful, it will be only for a little while because our hope is found in Him. The joy and pain of ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you for Christ. Lord, we are people who have a continuous need of you. We are sorrowful at times. I I know that Father's Day and Mother's Day can be very hard days for people. Some people that have wanted children can't have children or people that have lost a loved one, a father or a mother. These are very hard days. What do we do with that pain, Lord? Well, what we do, Lord, is we find that we lay them at your feet. We find that our joy is found in you and you alone. Our hearts are weak, Lord. We need you. Father, we pray that you will help us to trust you. We believe in you. We just need your help to believe more. We know that you are good and you are kind. and We know that you have sent your son, Jesus, for us to die for us, to to credit us with his righteousness. God, this is glorious news. Help us, Father, to embrace you, trust you, abide in you. Today and the rest of the days of our life. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.